Hey, good morning, Watermark. Uh, this is Pastor Tommy. First off, I want to say happy Mother's Day to uh, to all the mothers out there. Um, if you are a mother, uh, I hope that you feel loved today. Uh, if you have little ones, I, I hope you don't. F- and and let's say you have little ones and you don't feel like some kind of like super mom today. I want you to take a second, and I want you to imagine what you look like through the eyes of those little ones. All right. I'd imagine that you are the center of their world, that they think you're some kind of, of superhero from another world. Um, and that there's nothing they would rather do than, than to be with you and to be loved by you. So ponder that today. Maybe that'll help. Um, for those of you who are uh, mourning the absence of, of a mother for, for whatever reason, maybe you just can't be together. Maybe they've, uh, they've passed on at some point in your life. Um, I want you to know that, that, that you should be reminded that you were brought into this world out of love and that God intends to not only comfort you now, but return to you um, what you have, have loved and lost. Um, I also want to speak to all those um, mothers who are mourning the absence of a child, either through um, miscarriage, uh, through death, through them, maybe just moving to the other side of the world. And so you can't experience their presence right now. I want you to know that, that God is with you and that we, the church, are with you. Uh, we celebrate you as well, every bit as much as every other mom in our community. Uh, we want you to know that, that you are loved now and, and that we believe um, that your love will one day be restored to you again, bodily, physically, in person. So happy Mother's Day to each of you. Um, to the rest of you in our community, I hope you take the time today to reach out to the mothers that are in your life, not just your own mother, but the mothers around you, and thank them uh, for the Christ-like act that is giving birth, um, giving of their bodies to bring new life into this world. It's the most Christ-like thing I can imagine. Um, so today's passage comes from Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 54 through 60. It says this, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and then fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay. I'm going to start with something different today. Um, there's a book in the Old Testament called Proverbs. Um, perhaps you've read it. Um, if you're not familiar with this book and what it is, it is a, a collection of, of small sayings. This book, along with another book, uh, near there that near that part of the scriptures is called Ecclesiastes, that book. So Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are, are books of wisdom. They're written for ancient Kings to read. Um, there were many such books in the ancient world, uh, in every kingdom on earth. And these books were intended to teach wisdom to teach leadership, um, as well as to give meaning to the work of, of the office of the king. Um, there's, <clears throat> there's a particular passage there, uh, Proverbs 14, 12. Here's what it says. I want you to think about this. It says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Um, inherent in each of us 
is this perception of a way that seems right. That seems like the best way to go, the best road to travel down. Um, this feeling is usually connected to this collective story that, that a community is telling whatever story that your community that you were raised in, whatever story they are telling that usually is what determines how you decide in your mind and in your heart, what is the right way to go. Some cultures are telling um, stories of honor and tradition. Okay. Um, in these stories, the way that seems right is the way that is honoring to the people which, to which you belong. You see this uh, in a lot of high Asian cultures, right? Um, in these communities, you would rather die than bring disgrace to your family, to your community. It's about honor and, and tradition and grace, right? Um, not bringing disgrace. Uh, in other cultures, some people are telling this story that is centered on freedom and sacrifice, right? Uh, in which the way that seems right to you is the way that preserves sort of the complete autonomy of the person at all costs. And here's what I mean. In these communities, you would rather die than lose your autonomous decision-making ability, et cetera, like freedom. Um, in, in some stories that communities are telling, um, the highest cause is personal freedom and autonomy. And you would rather die than lose that. Okay. So there's, there's usually something we put, um, that we put right up against death. And we say, I'd rather have death than this. Right. Um, and some, in some cultures are actually telling stories that center on glory and status. This was the Roman sort of story that they were telling in some parts, I would say in, in high politics in America, this is sort of the story as well. Um, it's a story of glory and status, right? It's, it's where greatness and notoriety is the greatest achievement. Um, most of us, um, throughout history, most people, um, and most people in modern times, they dwell here in this, what I'm going to call the glory story, right? And it runs the glory story. Um, most of us are, are crippled to think that life um, is a game and the purpose of life is to win, right? This is how we sort of, this is how we've sort of been trained to think that we are here in life. You get one shot, FOMO. Do not miss your chance to blow. I did mix, mix, missing, mixing Eminem. Um, like you get one time to like be somebody and to climb the ladder and to do your thing. Um, and this is a way that seems right to a lot of people, notoriety, fame, honor, status, riches, wealth, power, right? And so what happens is we read stories like Stephen, this guy who was just put to death by all these people. Um, and we read these stories and we think, well, all he had to do was speak in ways that that aren't offensive to his audience. Like he didn't have to die. Like he could have done better work. Like he could have lived his life and done incredible work. Right. If he just hadn't said what he said, he shouldn't have done that. Um, he could have easily survived this encounter simply by saying, I honor both Moses and the temple. Right. Um, and so for a lot of people reading the text today, there's no logical reason why he should have died prematurely. And they say things like, I would have done things differently. I would have been smarter about this. I would have gotten my point across in other ways that don't cause me to lose my life. Right. Um, that's what I want to think about today. Um, how we view death, how we view sort of the martyr, how we view suffering. Um, and I want to hold that up against some of the stories that we tell each other in our cultures. Um, what is worth dying for? 
uh, is anything worth dying for? Uh, so let's talk about the martyrdom of Stephen. Um, we just read the text, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 60. Stephen has just finished this sermon. Um, this sermon is his defense against the accusations, the false accusations that are coming at him that he blasphemes Moses and that he blasphemed the temple. He didn't do either of these things. Um, and so in this verse 54, it says when he finishes his sermon, here's what it says in verse 54. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. First off, gnashing teeth in the Bible is, uh, it, it refers specifically to anger, people that are upset. Um, he enraged them, but why are they so mad? Why are they gnashing their teeth at him? What did he say? Okay. So they are cheerleaders of the prophetic side, if you will. Um, the, his audience, they, they believe that they are on the side of Moses, that they are on the side of Joseph. But what Stephen is doing, Stephen is explaining to them that they are even right now while he's speaking on the wrong side that they are not on the side of the good guys. They're not on the side of Moses and Joseph. They're on the side of the people who were against Moses and Joseph, his brothers that sold him into slavery, Joseph, right? Um, the people who made the golden calf and reject Moses. Um, he's telling them like they revered Moses and Joseph and these other prophets. And what Stephen is doing is he says, you claim to revere these people, but I'm here to tell you, in the retelling of this story, you are not on the side that revered Moses and Joseph. You're on the side that sold Joseph into slavery and that rejected Moses um, and grumbled and complained and made a golden calf to worship because you wanted to go back to, to Egypt, right? So that's what he's saying. This makes them furious. Um, look, at, look at verse 53. It says, you, have, uh, you received the law of angels, but you didn't keep it. In other words, you can say all you like about Moses, but actually, you never kept Moses' law. You never did. And finally, you know, it, he, he says enough to push him over the edge. They've had enough. Um, and so they grab him and they drag him out of the city of Jerusalem. They can't kill him in Jerusalem for several reasons. First off, it would make the city unclean. The shedding of human blood of the image of God in the city, in the holy city would make the whole city unclean. They can't do that. Second, they're not even legally allowed to kill Stephen. This was the role of the Roman governors. Okay. Um, the Roman governors were the only ones that could put anyone to death. And so they had to wait, just like Jesus, they had to take Stephen to a trial before Pilate. But instead, they decide they have enough people and they can cause enough confusion where they can take Stephen out and they can lynch Stephen. This is what this is. This is a lynching. Um, uh, lynching, even James Cone says, lynching doesn't always re require a rope and a tree. There's many ways to do this. Um, and this is what they do to Stephen. Um, they rush out of the court, they throw him down and they start pelting him with rocks. But Stephen, while he's being pelted with rocks, um, he gives this an extraordinary sort of mini sermonette. He says these specific lines that are shocking. Um, one of the things he says, he says, he says, I can see heaven opened. I can see the son of man standing at, um, at Christ's right hand. And this makes him even more mad. This enrages him even more um, because what he's doing is he's, he's, it's like they're starting, they're dragging him out to stone him and they throw him down on the ground. And he says, and it's like, he pauses and he goes, wait, wait, I, I see them. And they're like, what, what, what do you see? And he goes, I see heaven and earth and they're, they're coming together and I can see it and they're coming together in Jesus. Um, and they start screaming blasphemy 
And this enrages them all the more because what he's claiming is heaven and earth no longer come together in the temple. They come together in Jesus and now his church. That is the new temple. Uh, he has Daniel 7 in his mind. Heaven and earth coming together and, and the Son of Man holding them together, being heaven and earth in one place. It means that Jesus is in charge, is what he's saying. The temple's not in charge. These people are no longer in charge. Jesus is now in charge. That heaven and earth come together in him. And so they stone him to death. Uh, but as they stone Stephen, he prays and he says, Lord, receive my spirits. And then he says, um, don't let this sin stand against them. These two lines, Lord, receive my spirit, and don't let this, their sin stand against them, are crucial to understanding uh, what Luke is doing with this passage and the retelling of it, okay? Um, so, my, my big question about this episode, about Stephen's response to his own murder, about the words that he says, how he describes heaven and earth come together, and how he says, forgive them, they don't, you know, don't let us stand against them. My big question is, where did this come from? This response, where did this response come from? Um, this response is not a Jewish response to being martyred, to being oppressed. Um, I know we like to think of them as Christians. So these early, these early followers of Jesus, the early church, we, we already today, we look back, we think, oh, they're Christians. Um, and Christians have a way of thinking. But at this time, <coughs> excuse me, at this time, um, these are not Gentile Christians. They're not like you and I. They're not Greeks who came to Christianity. Um, there's not a single, actually at this time, there's not a single Gentile convert in, to Christianity in the world at this moment in time when, we're reading, when, when this is, is happening. Every single follower of Jesus in this day is considered Jewish. They considered themselves Jewish. They would say, I am Jewish. I'm Israelite. I'm one of God's people. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And this is what, what, keeps me sort of makes me even more Jewish, right? They think this is the way God is leading his people. But in the Jewish tradition of martyrdom, um, people never prayed like this. People never, when they were being martyred, uh, spoke kindly about the people martyring them. In the book of Maccabees, uh, when people prayed when they were being tortured to death, uh, if you read the book of Maccabees, um, it's, it's this Jewish writing, intertestamental writing, by the way, in case you, you, you don't know what that is. Um, while they're being killed, they're calling down curses upon their persecutors. Um, there's, there's this idea of, of zeal, of godly zeal, which is this fiery passion for holiness, right? And they're cursing evil and they're calling down judgment upon the people who are actively killing them. And as they're being killed, the Jewish people are known for calling out unholiness of the people doing these acts, not forgiving them, but saying, what you're doing is wrong. God's judgment is upon you calling down the judgment of God upon these people and condemning them for what they're doing. But this is not what Stephen is doing. And this doesn't make any sense. Um, what was it that changed? Where did he learn this bizarre behavior? And if the entire tradition of, of Jewish godliness before them uh, saw godliness as calling down judgment upon the ungodly, then what is Stephen doing? Where does this come from? So this conversation opens up one of my favorite conversations about the Bible, and that is the topic of the Imago Dei. I've taught about this extensively. Um, I love this topic. I think one of the, the Imago Dei is one of the most important things we need to understand. Um, so real quick, in the beginning of scriptures, um, the writers of Genesis tell us why we're here. They didn't tell us how we're here. They didn't know how we were here. They tell us why we are here. Um, and 
the explanation they give to why we are here, why God put us here is that we are here to be statues, images of the God whom we represent. Okay. Um, the world is meant to look at us, uh, to know what God looks like. Okay. Um, his character, his authority, um, how he wields his power, um, how he interacts with the rest of creation, uh, and, and the place that he holds in the universe. We were created and put here in the mind of the, of the writers of Genesis. We were put here for this job to convey the presence of God to the world so that the world could look at us and see this is what God is like. Okay. When I was a kid, I remember trying to figure out what it meant to be a godly man. I remember trying to figure this out. Um, summer camp, you know, uh, I used to work at summer camps and stuff and I would, I, I knew I would hear sermons about how you're supposed to be godly. Okay. And I, I wasn't quite sure what this meant because I can't be like God. Um, I figured it had something to do with being like God, but, but I wasn't always sure in what way that meant. I mean, I couldn't create matter and energy. I, I couldn't perform miracles. I couldn't see everything at once. I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipresent. Um, I certainly didn't have all the knowledge in the universe and I figured maybe it just meant keeping the rules that God kept the rules that God was super moral and ethical, even though he existed before rules and laws were made, but somehow he kept them. Um, did it mean I did being godly mean I, I wasn't, I just simply wasn't supposed to lie and lust after women or did it mean something more? Um, to what extent was I to try to be godly? Was I supposed to try to create things? What does this mean? Um, well, <clears throat> as I grew and matured in my thinking about the Bible and my understanding of, of what the scriptures are doing, the message they're portraying, the answer came to me in the form of Jesus. Um, for the early Christians, in, in Jesus, this is where we find the full revelation of who God is, the perfect imago Dei, uh, the full expression of humanity. This is where we saw this. Jesus showed us what true humanity really looks like um, by reflecting perfectly who God is. So if I wanted to know what godliness was like, I would ponder the life of Jesus, who was the perfect imago Dei, the perfect statue of what God looked like. Um, the one who perfectly reflected the love and the presence of God into creation, the ways that he cared for the world, the ways that he cared for people who were not like him, um, the way that he healed, the way that he spoke, the way that he inspired and led and poured himself out to, to bring about new life, restoration, reconciliation. Um, this is, this is how the early church viewed godliness. It was what Jesus modeled, okay? And so if Jesus was fully God, then Jesus becomes our model for our life. And our life becomes this, as Paul would say, a theatrical performance. This is the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, which is, is becoming the sort of the centerpiece for our, our vision statement of Watermark, of who we are. Um, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, he says, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. Spectacle, that's... Um, the Greek word there is theatric, and it's where we get a word for theatrical performance. We have been made a theatrical performance for the world of who God is. Not just that, um, of who Jesus is. So I want to take you back to Stephen with that in your mind. This is what it means to be an idol, to be the Imago Dei. 
to be the carved, created out of dust image of God placed here so that the world could look at you and you are going to act out through your existence, your animation. You're going to act out the theatrical performance of God now revealed in Christ. So you're going to act out the presence of Christ. Which is why Paul says, my life is no longer my own, but it is now Christ that lives in me. Like he is living out the life of Christ. All right, now let's take this back to Stephen and Stephen's death. Um, When we look at Stephen's martyrdom, what we find is exactly what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 4, 9. As they stone Stephen, he prays and he says two things. First, he says, uh, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The second thing he says is, Lord, don't let this sin stand against them. Do you see it as you're reading it? Do you see what he's doing? These are the words of Jesus Christ as Jesus suffered on the cross. Um, Jesus in Luke 23, 34 says this. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is what Stephen is, is saying. Uh, in verse 46, Jesus cries out, into thy hands I commit my spirit. This is what Stephen is doing. So Stephen's death even in his own mind, is this theatrical performance of Jesus Christ. He's living out the life of Christ by proclaiming the truth, telling the story, just like Jesus did, of who who they are. And when they turn on him, just like they turned on Jesus, and they begin to kill him, just like they killed Jesus, he continues playing out the story just like Jesus did. This is what's going on in the front of his mind as he is being stoned. It is no longer in his mind this life of his that he is preserving. In his death, it changes from his life being taken away to Christ's life being poured out. It becomes intentional. It becomes on purpose. All right. This is a radical innovation within the Jewish martyr tradition. This is huge. This is a massive shift in a Jewish understanding um, for these first century Palestinian Jewish Christians of of who God was. Um, And it looks like from the very start, the first Christians had in their mind constantly the Sermon on the Mount where it says, pray for those who persecute you. So right when he begins to be persecuted, he turns and acts out what Jesus did and what Jesus taught, which is praying for those who are persecuting him. So here we have the first, the very first Christian martyr. This is it. He's the first Christian martyr. Stephen is. And, and he does what all Christian martyrs are actually called to do, which is to pray for their persecutors. And in Stephen, the rest of these Christians that we see, uh, it's in the rest of these Christians that we see what, what a, a Christoform life looks like. We look at Stephen. We look at these Christians. And we see them acting out the life of Christ in public. Like a theatrical performance for the world to see what God looks like. This is what it means to be Christoform, formed by the life of Christ, formed by the teachings of Christ, by the death of Christ, by the resurrection of Christ, formed by the reign, the kingdom reign of Christ. We act out these things as we move throughout our life. That is the story that we tell. It is not one of honor and status and glory and power. It is not our power at all. We are living out someone else's story. By the way, if you actually believe that as a Christian, if you believe that you are actually being persecuted in any way, what should your then response be? If this is what it means, if being a Christian means 
being a theatrical performance of the way of the path of Christ. Your response should not be rage, revenge, hatred, tantrums, none of that. That is what others do. By, by others, I mean the kingdoms of the world. We, as people who are a living theatrical performance of the path of Christ, what we are supposed to do in this world um, is to pray for those who are persecuting us. If you really believe you're persecuted, love and prayer for those who are persecuting you, turning the other cheek. But why? This doesn't make any sense. Why would we do this? How does this solve anything? And that's what brings us back to our conversation about the glory story, right? There is a way, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. There is a way which you look and you say, here's what I should do, but that way leads to death. But as Jesus has shown, and this is where we flip this, that verse on its head, there is a way which actually seems wrong as well. It seems wrong to humanity. Um, it seems to be the path of death. It's the path of the cross. It seems to be the path of death. But in fact, it is somehow the path of life, the path of true life. It is the path that leads to not just life for you, but for the rest of creation and humanity. So there is a, a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. But there is also a way that appears to lead to death, but in the end it actually leads to life. Okay? Now, my dog is barking. That happens. Um, Christianity, Luther said, Martin Luther, Christianity is not a theology of glory. Christianity is a theology of the cross. This is what we need to grasp. Christianity has never been about attaining power in any way. It has never been about our rights, our privileges. It has always been about the cross. It is not a story of glory. Uh, when Jesus became king, he invited us to follow him. But he did not invite us to follow him on a march to greatness. Despite what you may have heard, God is not concerned with your wealth and your success and your fame and your greatness. God is not concerned with human greatness at all. He did not create you to be great. He created you to reflect his own greatness. In fact, this is how we become great in the, in the eyes of the kingdom. Yet we are so afraid that the way of the cross leads only to loss. A, uh, a loss that we fear we actually can't bear. We are terrified to actually live in, in the path of the cross. And so instead, we spend the rest of our time grasping for greatness, striving for mere survival. Um, living for greatness, striving for survival, for just longevity in life, that is worldliness. That is not Christ-like in any way. That is not what Christ did. Um, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus even looks at his people and he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Um, I used to hear when I was younger, I used to hear about how God can transform our suffering. I used to hear about how the terrible things that we go through, God's going to use this for his good. God can transform this. God can make this. And I never understood it. It wasn't until I grasped the idea 
um, this idea of being formed by the very life of Christ. It wasn't until I understood cruciformity, Christoformity, that, that this all started to make sense to me. Um, I always viewed, as many people do, I viewed suffering as meaningless, uh, as pointless, um, as something to be avoided. Uh, you go your whole life hoping and praying that nothing bad ever happens to you. I was comforting my daughter about a week and a half ago who my son came down and he's like, Hey, Penelope's crying. So I went upstairs to talk to her and she's terrified that something bad is going to happen in her life. She's terrified of it. And she doesn't have any specifics. She's afraid she's going to suffer loss and pain. And I remember these feelings. When you become a young parent, you have these feelings. Those of you who have young children, who, who have ever had children, like you probably remember these feelings. I just, I hope nothing ever bad ever happens to them. You hope nothing bad ever, nothing bad ever happens to them. And it is, it's an interesting sort of thought because I mean, it, we look at suffering and we think it, it is meaningless, it, it's pointless. Uh, and most of the time it appears so. A family member receives devastating diagnosis from, from a doctor or a, there's a car crash or there's an economic crash and, and someone loses everything. People lose their jobs. Um, a young man is gunned down by, by someone while he's out jogging. Um, acting, somebody acting out of fear that was stoked by racism in the community. Where is God in any of this? What does any of it mean? And for those of us who are in pain, for any reason, the question of what is the point is oftentimes at the front of our mind. We just want to be done with it. How do we make this pain go away? But for the early Christians, uh, Christ injected their suffering with meaning. And believe me, they suffered unlike anything we could ever experience. For the early Christians, Christ didn't come to suffer so that humans might also just kind of suffer the same way he did. Christoformity. Being Christ-like, uh, being a theatrical performance of, of Jesus is not about you just suffering. That's not what it's about at all. For these Christians, the suffering of Christ, it, what it did is it provided a way to make their suffering like his. And here's what I mean. Their suffering became no longer meaningless loss, but it transformed into a pouring out of love for others, a gaining of wisdom to be given to others, a, a path towards enlightenment, experiencing and following in the path of Jesus to turn dark deadness into newness of life for others. The symbol of all creation, that in order for new life to come, something else must die. In order for spring to come, there must first be winter. In order for a seed to fall out of a flower, that flower has to die. In order for a child to be born, that mother must suffer. Um, Stephen's tragic story. Without the cruciform shape that it took, it would have been just another tragic murder. If Stephen hadn't had in mind... Christ and the suffering of Christ, and then responded to that, 
his death would have seemed entirely senseless and pointless, but we know it wasn't. Through Christ, through acting out the story of Christ, Stephen's suffering actually became a theatrical performance of Christ. It became a pouring out. It didn't become a tragic loss. It moved from something's happening. They're doing something to Stephen. It moved from that to Stephen is pouring his life out for the message of Christ so that this seed will be planted in their hearts. It became this beautiful act of love that would eventually turn this man, Saul, whom we get a glimpse of the camera kind of pans to this guy, Saul, who would like, you hear sort of like a dark soundtrack playing, right? And Saul's here and people are throwing their cloaks at his feet while they, while they kill the innocent Stephen. And Saul is approvingly looking forward. And what it did is Stephen's death became this beautiful act of love that would eventually turn this guy, this dark guy, Saul into this man, Paul, who would bring salvation and liberation to millions of people. That's what this did. My hope is that when I receive that phone call one day, I can only speak for me. My hope is that when I receive that phone call, that diagnosis, word of that tragedy, my hope and my prayer is that somehow I would remember the cross and take part in it. That Jesus, that I would remember that Jesus not only understands, but that Jesus himself suffered and has transformed his own suffering into an act of salvation by, by removing it from an act of murder against an innocent man to an act of an innocent man pouring his life out for the world. And I pray that somehow my life and your life through our suffering would work towards these ends, that our suffering could be somehow transformed. C.S. Lewis um, of Narnia fame was a man who suffered intensely in his life, especially through the death of his beloved wife. Um, I want to read you. He, he understood this. He understood suffer, suffering and the transformation of suffering. I want to read you some of his quotes. I have a bunch. I don't know how many I'll read. I'll just stop when I'm ready. He says, the self-rejection will turn out to be also a self-finding. He says, total surrender is the first step towards the fruition of either nature or art. Yes. Um, I want to pause on that one. Total surrender is the first step towards the fruition of either nature or art. Either your life is being taken from you or it is being poured out as a display of something else. And then he says, um, he says, all conversions involve death and rebirth. Of course. Nobody ever changes when things are great. You don't rethink your life when you're hanging on in a hammock on the beach, sipping an umbrella drink out of a coconut. That's not when life change happens. It happens when you knock on your friend's door and you have to sleep on their couch because everything has been taken away. That is when your life changes. He also says that man himself must undergo some sort of death if he would truly live. Yes. He says, every merely natural love has to be crucified before it can achieve resurrection. He says, nothing will arise which hasn't in some degree shared the crucifixion. 
Yeah. For something to wake up, it has to fall asleep. For something to stand up, it has to be laying down. All of us are called to this pattern of cruciformity. All of us. The early church understood that they were performing the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This doesn't mean that we live for some grand death of the martyr narrative. That is not what we are doing. We are, are called, I mean, the, the laying down of our lives is the normal Christian life. That is what we are called to live. This is what all of this encompasses. The laying down of our lives is the normal Christian life. Pastor Brian Zahn, pastor, theologian, author, Brian Zahn, he says, the divine truth is that life is a gift and the purpose of life is to learn to love well. And I want to remind you that life isn't just your gift to you. It's not just your life is not just a gift from God to you. Your life is something that you also can offer as a gift to another. It can, it can be a gift which moves past you into others. And our daily prayer, the meditation of our hearts should always be that somehow we can learn to embrace the cross as the way that ultimately leads to authentic love and abundant life. We live a cruciform cross-shaped life. And when we do, things will begin to find their healing. This is how you should live in your marriage, pouring yourself out for your spouse so that they begin to flourish. This is how you should live in your work with the people that you interact with so that they are nourished. This is how we are to be even cruciform in our parenting, in our interactions with our enemies, uh, in any social interaction that we have, in politics, with our money. When you humble yourself and you pour yourself out, you find uh, that you will become the presence of Jesus wherever you are. The great act of being poured out and broken is displayed in the act of communion. I have the, uh, the elements here. Um, if you would, go ahead and grab your communion elements. Um, communion, the Eucharist, it's the good gift. It is the life of Christ, broken and poured out for, for you, for your life. Um, it is the blood of Christ poured out for you. So that you could find healing and nourishment so that you could learn to do this for others. And so please take the elements, the bread, the body of Christ broken for you, the wine, the blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation. Do this in remembrance of Christ. Father, thank you for your words, for your life, for the witness of the saints. May we follow them. May we find a way to transform our suffering into sheer acts of glorious love and beauty for the world to see. May our suffering somehow water the lives of others. May we learn wisdom from it. May we learn to be graceful with each other and gracious with each other. May we learn to be forgiven. Teach us through it all.
and fashion us in your image. May we be true statues of you. Imago Dei. In your name. Amen. So let's end today with our um, uh, collect prayer that our, that our prayer team has written for us. Let's do this. God, our rock, who shepherds us through the desert, give us patience in the times that we feel lost. Remove our focus from what is gone and remind us of our blessings. Lift us up when we are down. Renew our hearts and minds with your word. Grant us the eyes to see where you are calling us. Bolster our faith. Guide us to our purpose as we become one people, bringing your kingdom to earth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. I hope you have the most amazing Mother's Day of your life. Reach out to some mothers around you. Thank them for their selfless act of bringing new life into this world. Grace and peace.